Today on CityCast Salt Lake, we have spent the week talking about the crisis at the Great Salt Lake. And today, we're going to explore its wonders through a children's book, The Great Great Salt Lake Monster Mystery. It's a perfect fit because it explores the ecology of the lake through the eyes of a family and asks the question, is there a monster lurking here? The book was written by Dr. Bonnie K. Baxter and Jamie Butler, two scientists who founded the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. We were lucky to have local professional audiobook narrators Nancy Peterson, B.J. Harrison, and Cindy Kay produce the first ever recording of the Great Great Salt Lake Monster Mystery. First, I talked with Nancy about what makes for a good narration, and then... I hope you'll stick around for story time. It's Thursday, October 20th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Nancy, I'm so excited to record this audiobook, audio story with you. But first, I want to ask you a couple of questions about being an audiobook narrator. How did you get into this? In 2013, I literally Googled it <laughs> because I've done performance most of my life, not as a career, but, you know, sort of as a hobby. Hmm. And in 2013, there wasn't a lot out there for people like me, who don't live on one of the coasts or near a publisher. And so mm. I had to kind of search and scramble and see what I could find and found a little company called ACX.com. And after that, uh, it's become my full-time career, actually. How many books have you narrated? Uh, I have narrated now in 10 years uh, over about 215. Wow. Do people ever recognize your voice? It depends. I mean, normally, like, in, in out in public, no. <laughs> but mm -hmm. when I do TikToks, people will say, oh, I, I've listened to you on, and they'll name the book or, you know, mention something they've heard, which is kind of fun. But just out when I'm at the grocery store, no. <laughs> I'm curious how close this work is to acting. Because you're doing voices. Like, is it acting? Yes, and it varies because every project is a little different. So right now, my current project is a nonfiction piece. So there's mm -hmm. not a whole lot of what I would say acting. So, But my job as an actor acting this is I'm trying my best to get in the head of the author. My goal is to seek out through that writing their perspective, maybe even a little of their personality, um, and bring that in the what would be a performance. My wheelhouse is historical fiction. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of performance involved. And usually we're dealing with material that can sometimes be very difficult. And so, you know, there are times when I am, <laughs> I have to step away because I'm reading things that are difficult and I'm, you know, maybe sobbing, honestly. So yeah, there mm -hmm. is some, definitely some performance and acting that goes into this that really doesn't quite, it's not quite the same in other voiceover fields. This one's kind of different that way. It's closer to stage acting than it is to even like commercial voiceover, I think. Yeah. So you're the head of a sort of informal group of Utah audiobook narrators. How did you all find each other? Oh, back in 2017, 
I was now four years into audiobook narration, looking at this now as a viable shift from my former career as a dental hygienist. (laughs) (laughs) Natural. That's the pipeline. Yes, I know that's exactly what you (laughs) would expect. No. Um, But the timing was perfect. I was getting enough work that I knew it I could, you know, make this a full-time career. My problem was I'm in a I am in a four by eight square. I'm here a good part of the day and sometimes into the night <laughs> recording. Yeah. And it's um there t- I didn't have I didn't know any narrators. I didn't have any colleagues who I knew personally who are narrators. So I just started a Facebook group. That's really where it started. And I knew of one person no, two people, I think, who I'd heard of as narrators. And from there, they started adding people in. And our group, I think we have 60 in our group now, 60 Utah narrators. And I'm sure there are more. It's just, you know, people join as they hear of us. But it's been a great resource for support, for feedback. It's wonderful to have a group who, you know, you can commiserate with when you're having a rough time or whatever. It's just, it's been fantastic. Yeah, Well, I think this idea is so interesting of like, can you make a good book great or a not so great book good through your acting and your performance? Do you think it's possible? I think you can. My main objective as an audiobook narrator is to keep someone listening. It's a little different from a textbook, say, because a textbook, the main objective of a textbook is to gain information. But my job a step away from that is I got to keep you there or you're not even going to listen. So I have to be entertaining first, then impart information. And so, yes, I mean, that really is the biggest part of our job is making sure people continue to listen. And, you know, because there's just no point otherwise. Yeah. My last question for you, what are your favorite characters to voice? Is there a particular like accent or (laughs) age range that you have the most fun doing? I love doing children. That's not something I felt comfortable doing initially. However, I'll just tell you a little secret. I feel like, personally, every character in every book of fiction is someone from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You can take almost every character from Pride and Prejudice and plug them in. (laughs) <laughs> Whether or not there's an accent, I do. I do love to do British accents, and I do. I have done my fair share of Regency romance um, novels and novellas, but yeah. it's like it's like I'm finding the Mister Collins in the who's who is the Mister Collins in this book, or who is Mister <laughs> Darcy, or who's mother, or Lydia. I mean, if you think about it, there is such a full and rich cast of characters in Pride and Prejudice that. I can almost like, oh, yeah, I know exactly who to do in this book, and I know who exactly. And they may not have the accent, but I can kind of see who fits all those. I mean, I hate to use the word stereotypes, but I will. Stereotypes. Oh, my gosh. Nancy, I feel like (laughs) I am so grateful that you just let me in on that secret, and you just ruined my life. Sorry. I'm I'm not a voracious reader, but I read quite a bit, and I am now going to be obsessively looking for all the Jane Austen like characters or subtext in everything I read. And I do feel like there are probably a lot of people out there who already do that, and you just made them feel so seen. It's true. I'm just going to put it out there. I believe it. Well, 
I'm excited to find the Jane Austen characters in the Great Salt Lake Monster Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> they, some of them are going to sound a little younger, but they're the personalities. Believe me. That is such a trip. Nancy Peterson, thank you so much. What a joy. Let's bring in the rest of the team and let's read this book. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. I am proud to present The Great, Great Salt Lake Monster Mystery, written by Dr. Bonnie K. Baxter and Jamie Butler, as read by Nancy Peterson, B.J. Harrison, and Cindy K. What's that disgusting smell? Shrieks Layla. Baby Cora wrinkles her nose while sniffing the air. That's the Great Salt Lake Monster, says John confidently. Somewhere beneath the surface of this lake, there is a mystery to solve. People used to see the monster and even wrote about him in the newspaper years ago. They say he has bumpy skin like an alligator and saw-edged teeth. He can hear his prey from far away because he has ears like a bat. His body is covered in a thick crust of salt, perfect camouflage in this salty water. The monster must be somewhere in the lake, because while rivers bring water into the Great Salt Lake, none of them flow out. On the shore by the marina, we come across our first clue. Cora's feet are covered in tiny baby monsters. I look more closely and see flies, billions of them. They sound like they're whispering, but it's just the sound of their fluttering wings. They're brine flies, explains John. They feed the birds of the lake, and they don't bite. I watch the flies swirl around baby Cora's dancing feet and wonder what the great Salt Lake monster eats. Maybe he eats the brine fly larva, Layla says, pointing to the twitching worms in the water. I imagine the monster scooping them up in his great big jaws. These insects pupate on the bottom of the lake, the way a caterpillar does in a cocoon. I noticed the old pupil casings lining the shores from the flies that were born into the salty air. We put on our life jackets and launch the little boat. I steer away from the marina in search of the monster. As we get farther from the shore, the kids see only birds surrounding them. John says, Those are eared grebes. I wonder if they think our boat is a humongous bird. I remember the grebes migrate to the salty lake to eat lots of brine shrimp and then leave in giant flocks. 
I imagine the sound of millions of birds taking off at once, their running feet pitter-pattering against the water like raindrops falling back up into the sky. We dock on the shore of Antelope Island. Mutter! Baby Cora shouts, pointing behind me. I turn to look, but the giant furry creatures are just bison and a couple of pronghorned antelopes. We still haven't found the monster. John takes his little sister for a walk along the sandy beach, while Layla and I examine the rocks on the island. Geologists say some of the oldest rocks on Earth are on Antelope Island. If the rocks could speak, what would they tell us about the Great Salt Lake Monster? Is he larger than the bison? Does he emerge from the water to walk along the shore like we do? Does he feel the soft sand ooze through his toes? I feel the slippery water in my hands and see it is teeming with brine shrimp. I wonder if the monster eats them. I know there are no fish in the salty parts of Great Salt Lake, and these creatures seem too small. And why would he need jagged teeth? But there are so many of them, suggests Layla. In the ocean, whales eat billions of tiny plankton. Why couldn't a monster only eat brine shrimp? Layla's right. A monster could definitely survive in this salty lake. When we get out of the water, we notice white crystals all over our feet. I tell the other kids that it is salt left behind from evaporation. We also see salt sparkling on hard mounds scattered around the shore. John asks, What if we are walking along the ridges of the monster's back? Layla loosens a chunk of rock that is bright green. This is not a piece of the monster, she explains. These are microbiolites, rocks made by the algae in the water. Cora, can you say photosynthesis? Baby Cora ignores her and toddles along the mounds and then sits on one that has collapsed into a ring. As we squish our feet into the silky sand, I'm reminded of why Great Salt Lake beaches are special. The sand grains are called oids, which means eggs, because each piece of sand looks like a little egg. The grain forms as minerals from the water layer on top of each other like a pearl in the ocean. John reminds me that the first layer is wrapped around brine shrimp poop. That's why I call them pooids, John says. Layla laughs, but then her eyes widen and her laughter turns into a scream. I turn around and see a goopy creature emerging from the water. Could it be the great Salt Lake monster? No, it's only Cora. Her face and hands are covered in oolitic sand. And I try not to think about her eating brine shrimp poo. The sun is hot on our backs as we walk along the causeway that connects Antelope Island to the mainland. We sit on the rocks and snack while gulls run into clouds of brine flies, holding their mouths wide open to collect as many insects as possible. American avocets, with their beautiful orange heads, dip their upward curving bills into the water to scoop up insects. Black-necked stilts seem to look at their own reflections in the salt water around their feet. I close my eyes and think about the monster hiding in his salt-crust camouflage. I imagine him slithering out of the water and chasing the birds as they rush into the air. Suddenly, 
I hear his growl. But when I open my eyes, I see it is just Cora snoring peacefully on John's shoulder. Back on the water, we encounter another boat. It looks like it's dragging a giant floating net behind it. Are they trying to catch the Great Salt Lake monster in their hoop? Layla wonders aloud. John explains that his mom used to work on a boat like this one, and that she collected the floating brine shrimp cysts, which are used as fish food all over the world. John tells us, When it gets cold, the adult brine shrimp die, but they leave behind these hard-shelled capsules that protect their babies, sort of like eggs. We sail through the railroad causeway that separates the north and south arms of the lake. One moment, we're sailing through the water that looks like green pea soup. As we cross into the north arm of the lake, our boat floats higher in water that resembles pink lemonade. I explain to the others that our boat is more buoyant in the super salty pink water, which is ten times saltier than the ocean. My mom studies these pink microbes that live here, Layla says. They're called halophiles. It means salt lovers. Behind us, we see a train on the railroad causeway, carrying the salt that is produced by evaporation of the dense Great Salt Lake water. John asks, Do you think the monster loves salt? We see Gunnison Island in the distance, floating in endless pink water. Cora squeals, and I scan the water for the monster's bat ears or an alligator tail. We follow her gaze and see large white birds with black-tipped wings. American white pelicans. My mom never shuts up about them, says John, rolling his eyes. John tells us how these pelicans raise their babies on Gunnison, an island in the saltiest part of the lake, which has no fish. It's hard work for the parents to go fishing many miles away and bring food back to their young. But the solitude protects the pelicans from coyotes and people. Does the monster visit the peaceful island when it wants to take a nap? When the water gets shallow, we step off of the boat. We've arrived at Spiral Jetty, a famous artwork by Robert Smithson. The artist was drawn to the pink water, black rocks, and white salt crystals on this remote shore. The sculpture changes over time as the lake levels go up and down. We walk along the black basalt rocks that make the spiral and think about the ancient volcanoes that created them. John hikes down the shore and finds geometric crystals. Layla looks at them in the light. They look magical. I wonder if the monster dropped them here. Sadly, I realize the Great Salt Lake monster is probably a mythical creature. Maybe people who wrote about him long ago were so bewildered by this unique and unusual lake, they thought its mysteries could only be explained by a monster. My thoughts are interrupted by Cora pointing with excitement toward the shore. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a splash and a shadow. Okay, that was so cute. I was delighted and I hope you were too. Here's one more little tidbit from the book, which features a glossary of terms at the end. Have you heard the story of Pink Floyd? He was a Chilean flamingo who escaped from the Tracy Aviary in 1987. 
He settled on making the Great Salt Lake his new home until he disappeared again in 2005. If you want to pick up a copy of The Great Great Salt Lake Monster Mystery and learn more, you can find one at the King's English Bookstore on 15th and 15th. The hardcover features lovely illustrations by Arlie Landry. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Big thank you to Dr. Bonnie K. Baxter and Jamie Butler for sharing their words with us, and to BJ Harrison, Cindy Kay, and Nancy Peterson for lending their voices to this story. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Goodbye. Leela, I mean, she's kind of like Lydia, don't you think? She's inquisitive and, and um, I don't know, I just pictured her. Uh, she would be more of a Lydia than maybe Elizabeth. Oh, she has some Elizabeth in her, maybe. We all do. <laughs> we're, doing, we're all doing our best. <laughs>